It's good to see you guys here. I'm excited about uh, this series we're in because it's on the misunderstood character of God. We're talking about the character of God, but we're approaching from a different angle, trying to extract all the different lies that we've accumulated from well-intended people and well-intended Bible studies and, and great experiences, but actually form subtle lies in our belief system about who God is. The big thesis of the series is that the most misunderstood and most misrepresented person in the universe is God. And that within his children, in the hearts of his children, his children believe things are not true about the Father. Now, I'm a father of two little kids, four-year-old Scarlet and two-year-old Maverick. And let me tell you, if they ever had the wrong idea who their daddy was, I'm like really concerned. It is the number one concern of my heart that they know my heart. And for some of us, we have these lies that are hidden, and I believe that God in this, in revealing these things for us is just after us, like, please know really who I am. And so the aim of this is to make sometimes us a little uncomfortable and point out the things that are hidden and trapped in our belief system. And if you get mad, don't write me emails. Take it up with Jesus. <laughs> But let's get real with who God is and who God isn't. That's what I want. I don't want to be told what it sounds good. I want to know what really is true. It's so much better to be disappointed momentary in a lie and momentary in the truth because it's a letdown. It might be different, but it's far better being committed to truth than being comforted by a lie. We believe things that sound like they should be in the Bible, but aren't. They sound like someone's righteous somewhere said something, but it's completely harmful for God's character. And that's what we're trying to do in this series. And I ask that you, if you attend these several nights here, just have your heart and your mind available to be changed. That's all. Like Leanne said, here's an opportunity where you actually get to de decide, who do I believe God to be? Decide now outside the crisis. Don't let a crisis form your theology. But decide now, like, who do I really believe God to be? I owe tribute to an author named Darren Hufford, and he has helped shape some amazing things in terms of helping extract some of these lies. He's got a couple of books, so he's out there. But here's the deal is that God says in 1 John 4 that God is love. God is love. He just, like, defines himself right there. How do we know God? We know God if we know love. And yet if we have a distorted view of love, we get a distorted view of God. If we have a distorted view of God, we get a distorted view of love. But God himself defines himself as love and then in the scriptures defines love in all of its attributes for us. So if we really want to know the character of God, we need to go no further than just defining what love is in the scriptures. And it's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 7. If you've been to a wedding in your entire life, you've probably heard this passage quoted, which is, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And we can know everything about God's character from this. And last week we talked about God is patient. And this week I'm going to talk about how God is kind and that God does not envy. And you think you know what those things mean, but I promise you, you don't. So let's start first with God is kind. I'll get through as much as I can tonight. I have like 80 pages of notes. I won't make you suffer through. 
But God is kind, right? Like, this is another, like, these are duh statements. God is kind. It sounds really obvious, but last week we talked about God is patient. We actually discovered we have no idea what patience means. And the same thing is here with kindness because we actually have been accustomed to not expecting love to be kind. God is kind. Love is kind. It's like, we actually don't even believe that in our practical lives. How do I know? It's because fill in the blank with whatever story, whatever person who talks about some dysfunction, some lies, some manipulation, some abuse, blah, 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 fill it in. And then it always ends with the, but I know they really love me. We'll take whatever behavior, no matter how unkind, and then we'll stamp it with, but they really love me. I remember in high school, let's just say I wasn't like having a line out the door for the ladies. Let's just say that. But I ended up marrying one that was far above my pay grade. But in high school, tough time to be in relationships. I remember specifically a friend saying, girls don't like nice guys. I'm like, why can't I get a date? And he's like, you know what? Just be mean to them. And they'll think you're so much hotter. I'm like, really? And I was so repulsed by this whole list. Like, all the, mm, all the guys, another slang for not very awesome guys, they would get all the attraction, all, all the attention from the girls, and it was driving me nuts. I even went so far as me and a buddy were like two nice guys. We would dress ourselves up as at nerds, and at school performances, we would sing these fake songs, and we call ourselves the Dateless Losers, and our number one song is Nice Guys Finish Last. And the bad guy gets the girl, and it makes you want to hurl, nice guy. And like this whole song and this, and we would write songs about how this is so messed up that all the ladies want a guy that wants to treat them like garbage. It doesn't even seem off to us. But everyone has a story of someone who is abusive, who mistreats them. And then we say, but they really, they really do love me. We have no idea how opposite these concepts are. It's kind of like peacekeeping missiles, <laughs> you know? Or maybe it's like efficient government or an honest politician. Like you fill in the blank. There's like these concepts that mean the total opposite when you put them together. But with every attribute of love, the devil produces a counterfeit. Every single one of those attributes, the devil produces a counterfeit. And our hearts are actually in agreement with the counterfeit of kindness. And the counterfeit seems and feels so real that we believe it, but the great counterfeit of kindness is manipulation. The great counterfeit of kindness is manipulation. Manipulation seems like kindness, but has an agenda. Manipulation seems like kindness, but has a catch. Manipulation seems like kindness, but remembers for later. The moment an agenda is present, true kindness is voided out and becomes manipulation. True kindness must never have a motivation in order for it to be kind. The moment an act has a motive, it ceases itself to be kind and becomes manipulation. But we're so used to manipulation that we even get suspicious when someone's kind. Like it's like, Waterbury, your head is just so shiny. That bald head is just looking so good. Glory is emanating from the set. You know what his reaction is going to be? Like, what do you want? <laughs> you know? We're used to having a compliment produce an expectation of what am I going to be asked. Now, as a child, like, I kind of naturally in my DNA, I knew how to manipulate my mom. And she's probably watching right now. She didn't remember the story. 
I really wanted, when I wanted something, I knew how to like pour on the faucets and butter mom up. Uh, one time I wanted like a particular gift for Christmas, I wrote it on little slices of paper in like a hundred different places, put it in like her makeup compacts, put it in her purse, put it in like in jars of sugar, like I put it everywhere with like what I wanted for Christmas. Or like, mom, you're so beautiful, amazing, and I just vacuumed all the house. Can I talk to you? Like, I knew how to be kind in order to manipulate. And the same goes as when I was in trouble. I wrecked my parents' car twice. Once on my driver's test. That's a different story for another time. You know, I'm like being really kind to mom and dad when you wreck their car twice. But we expect that kindness usually has a motive and agenda. And to us, we don't even notice it as unusual at all. And we've come into agreement with manipulation so much that we actually prefer manipulation to kindness. Because it gives us a logical response. We know where we stand. When I know your agenda and you're nice to me because I know what you want, I actually know where you stand and I know where I stand. It's actually kind of comforting because I'm not confused. I have an explanation behind it. At least with manipulation, one can learn over time to read motives and reasons behind it. There's certain people who only contact me in certain times when they need something for me. I like this college professor who calls me every June because I did his logo in like 2004. And like, oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot to like catch up over the past 12 months. And I need this by Tuesday. You know, it's like, dude, like, I know you, I, I, like, I, at least I know where I stand. Your kindness, your promises to do these different things, like, I, I get it. Actually, it's, I, we don't need to do the song and dance anymore. I know you're using me, but we can just move on. And yet it doesn't violate me for some reason. Why? It's because we've all been trained to accept kindness as manipulation. But true kindness, it's so foreign that we get horribly uncomfortable and insecure and, and uncomfortable. It makes us totally feel like we're helpless because we have no control over the matter and it feels almost violating. When someone is so kind and so generous and just authentic with you, you're just like, what is this? Stop. <laughs> I once got back in my truck after being gone and I let some people borrow it and I got my truck and I'm like, my truck does not look this good. And so I detailed it, filled it with gas, polished it, vacuumed it. My inside is like not awesome. And I'm like, this is uncomfortable. It's really nice. I'm like, I owe them. You know, it's like, I can't let them get away with this. Like, this has to stop. Like, now I owe you. And what if I die? And like, I'll die and you owe me. And like, it just, it stresses us out. And, and we want to feel like there's a debt to be repaid when someone's really kind. I've felt so much guilt over the kindness of God. I don't know about you. The cross, I don't want to hear about the cross. It makes me feel so guilty. It was such an outrageous act of kindness. I don't even want to like ponder it because it makes me feel worse and worse the more I dwell in it. I never saw the passion of the Christ for that very reason. It's like I can't watch a movie showing the greatest act of kindness ever. Why? Because it's going to make me feel so obligated. I'm not going to be able to carry the debt of repaying what was done for me. But true kindness, it can't be repaid, does not want to be repaid, will not be repaid, because then it wouldn't be kindness. The Lord spoke to me, he's like, you want to repay the cross, but I ain't taking your money. You can't, I won't, I won't receive it. 
And we feel like we owe God so much for his kindness that like we have to like work it off and pay it off. Why? It's because we're used to that system. And the problem is that religion promotes the counterfeit version of kindness. Religion actually teaches you that God is not kind and God actually manipulates. Religion says, whoa, you really sinned. You better be at church on Sunday or you're in trouble. You can make it worse if you start skipping church. Or maybe religion says, something tragic happened to me. Something really bad happened. My life stinks. And you know what the religion says? What unconfessed sin do you have? What do you, what? Religion says, you better get right before God sends a lightning bolt of judgment on you. What? And we've, we've been taught that God manipulates us in response to us. How about the offering play? Your breakthrough's on the other end of that offering. <laughs> I've been there for that. It is weird. People are like, if you just sow in the kingdom more, then God is going to like finally heal you. Like the prosperity gospel in Africa that basically teaches, come bring all your money, give to the church, and then you'll be healed of AIDS. It's crazy stuff. You need to look it up. All in the name of Jesus down there. And people are desperate. Like they think God is like giving them HIV, AIDS, and, and if they give money that they'll be healed. It's crazy, but religion likes to exercise control. And so any religion that teaches God in manipulation is not teaching that God is kind. How do you know if it's kindness? It always reaches the heart. How do you know it's true kindness? It always reaches the heart. Have you ever been given a gift that's like terrible? You're like, do you know who I am? <laughs> it's like someone who would give me running shoes has no idea who I am. I don't like to run unless someone's chasing me with a knife. And at least has to be like lethal size. I got an April Fool's joke from a friend breaking up with me in the ministry, saying, I'm going to go leave and go to a new ministry, and then like proceeded to say, this ministry, and then she listed all my like theological pet peeves. It was great, because why? Because the joke knew exactly about me. I, uh, <laughs> I have so many stories on this. One more. Ashley, Katie, and Mike, and a few others, um, one night for my birthday, I grew up loving snow, praying for snow, wishing I'd get snow, you know? I was in Portland, and we're like 400 feet elevation, just below the snow level in the wintertime, and just rain. They went up to Tahoe, filled a truck full of snow, came down to my lawn at 2 in the morning, filled my lawn with snow, created a snowman, and started throwing snowballs at my house to wake me up. I open the door, I get hit by a snowball in the chest. I run to go get my ski jacket on, I'm out there, and we have like the biggest snowball fight at 3 in the morning. I give that like totally into my heart, reaches my heart. That's what kindness is. Kindness is an attribute of love, and love lasts forever, so kindness must always be aimed at the forever part of you, which is your heart. Kindness is not niceness either. There's a difference between being kind and being nice. Even evil people can be nice once in a while. And we all said amen. We must never confuse niceness with kindness. They're miles apart. Niceness reaches the head and the flesh. 
says, I'm going to just give you something because I should. I don't even think about you, your heart, or what you like, or who you are. I'm just going to just, going to just do something because doing anything is better than doing nothing. That's nice, right? Niceness asks, how are you doing? Kindness asks, or kindness wants to know the answer. And kindness usually already does know the answer. Kindness brings you to your knees and exposes your heart. In my heart, I believe God was manipulative and was nice but not kind. How do I know? Because I believe God was most concerned about what I did instead of who I am. In our heads, we are in good standing usually by where our butts are on Sunday and what we did last night. Am I in good standing with God? Well, let me check the past seven days. I give it a B, you know? Like we evaluate our own status with God based on how we are doing. But God in this way doesn't look at what you're doing. He looks at your heart because the heart of you is the forever part of you. He's so concerned about your heart. He doesn't care about your flesh or your sin. He wants you to obviously love him. And when you love him, you'll make the right choices. But he's looking always at your heart. He's not looking at your flesh. He's not looking at your sin. And God looks at your heart because he knows every sin and struggle originates from an issue in the heart. He's always looking at your heart because every sin and struggle originates from the heart. Either a lie you believe, a pain in your heart, everything originates from there. And that's why God is always looking into your heart, the forever part of your heart. But here's the problem. I don't know about you, but how I pray for my entire life Always declare that, God, I don't want you looking at my heart. I want you looking at my head and flesh. I want you to be nice. God, give me a good job. God, give me good skills. God, give me this relationship. Give me a car. Give me things. Don't look at the forever part of me, God. Look at the flesh part of me. Be nice to me. Don't be kind to me. And those things are, while they can be significant, we miss that God wants to aim for the forever part of you in your heart. And the moment we understand that God's sole focus is on the heart, we'll stop stressing out about the flesh. If you're stressed out about the flesh, you are worrying about the wrong part that God isn't thinking about. If you believe God manipulates, your life will forever be haunted by trying to earn favor from God because you believe that he manipulates the outcomes. Because our theology says that God will withhold good things if we're bad. And as long as we're in struggle, nothing good can come of us which is completely bad theology. Can you receive true kindness? Here's the sign. How do you respond when someone pays you the most heartfelt compliment? How do you? It's like, ah, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> How do you respond? So say like, Nathaniel, you are the greatest drummer I've ever heard. When you play, the heavens open up. I am drawn into worship. I feel just alive. I feel that this music comes together. How do you feel, right? (laughs) You want to crawl in the floor right now, don't you? (laughs) And kindness is so foreign to us. If we can't receive that, you're going to have a really hard time receiving the heart of God, because the heart of God is always at that radical level of kindness that reaches your heart. And until you're able to receive authentic kindness like that, you'll never know the heart of God. The heart of God is kindness with no return. Why does it matter if you believe that God is kind or nice? Is because 
you will never give your heart to a manipulative person. You will never give your heart to a manipulative person. It's too dangerous for us, isn't it? If you know they manipulate, there's some people in my life that manipulate, they don't get my heart. <laughs> if, you're asking myself, if you're asking yourself, like, I don't know if God has my heart, you might want to ask, do I believe God manipulates? How do I really believe that God orchestrates good things and bad things? Is it tied to me? Is it tied to sin? What does he think about me? Is he pleased with me? Is he disappointed in me? I mean, that, that song, he's a good, good father, is the, and you guys know I, I don't like songs that have bad theology. That is a song with good theology. <laughs> It's like, I'm, you're pleased by me. Yeah. If God doesn't have your heart, maybe you should ask your heart, what do I believe about God? Yeah. How you guys doing? I could talk on that forever. I'm just going to go to that. God does not envy. God does not envy. That's what your translation says. Your translation is wrong. The word there actually says that God is not jealous. So it's true meaning. God is not jealous. Here's the problem. In the Bible, it says God's jealous. 1 Corinthians says if we're going to translate God according to how love is defined, that God is not jealous. But the translator said, uh-oh, other places in Scripture tell us that God is jealous. So they wanted to make sure that the Bible doesn't conflict. The Old Testament, Exodus 20, says he's a jealous God. James 4, 5, he's jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? But here in 1 Corinthians, we're talking about love. It says that love is not jealous. Uh-oh. Well, there's two definitions. The first two definitions, if you look up jealousy in the Webster's Dictionary, it says intolerant to rivalry or unfaithfulness. Second is hostile towards rivals. Now, those things make sense for us because we, like, imagine the high school relationships where, like, people are hacking into phones, driving by houses, like, slashing tires, like, doing, like, crazy stuff, right? What's on your phone? <laughs> like, we get that. We get that idea of jealousy. But there's a third definition to jealousy, and it says this, vigilant in guarding and protecting. Vigilant in guarding and protecting. Righteous jealousy is all about security and the protection of you. What's the difference? There's carnal jealousy and then there's righteous jealousy. Carnal jealousy is a selfish reaction because someone else got what you want. That's carnal jealousy. We get that all the time. We see it all the time. The new Tesla's out. I'm like, jealous. Like, I don't... No. A righteous jealousy is preserving and protecting someone else on their behalf. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I, we met a couple. They also have a couple young kids. We go to their house, we're having fun, and their little boy's like six. My daughter's four, Scarlett. And we're like finishing dinner. The kids are playing. Like, you know, the boy pulls out the iPad. They're playing games, watching cartoons, or like that. The six-year-old boy turns to Scarlett, and I'm overhearing this. He says, hey, let's go up into my room and watch the iPad on my bed and shut the door. I'm like, uh, no, 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 no. No. <laughs> Am I insecure? No. I'm jealous, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Vigilant and protecting. You better believe it. That's the jealousy of God. 
It's not, oh, I'm so insecure. It's, no, I'm guarded, I'm vigilant for you. But we have God boxed into this carnal jealousy, and this carnal jealousy has two associations. The first is a lustful feeling, a lustful aspiration. The second is to be insecure. And these are the two things we attach to God in his jealousy. But God is not a lustful God. Here's a couple examples. So often we believe that God is actually attracted to the highest, the most spiritual people. Right? And God plays favorites. I was like really confused because I'd read the New Testament and read about the disciple that Jesus loved. Have you ever seen that? The disciple that Jesus loved. It's mentioned like a few times. Who's the disciple that Jesus loved? Anybody know? John. Where's the single book of the Bible where the disciple that Jesus loved is found? The Gospel of John. If I were to write a book about Eric Waterbury, and it's like, and the son, that, the spiritual son that Eric Waterbury loved, and I'm talking about myself, you'd be a little suspicious too, wouldn't you? But I would believe that God plays favorites. They like, likes us all, but kind of loves some of us a little bit more. Those who are really spiritual, those who are really righteous. Like God that really loves missionaries, like the most. Like they've really proven that they love God the most. I had a really hard time. I do startups. I felt like I was betraying God because I wanted to go into business versus go be a missionary. It's like if you really love God, you're going to become a missionary. Because God loves missionaries the most. Or I need to go to this person because only God hears their prayers. He doesn't hear my prayers, but he hears the prayers of that person, so I'm going to go to that person. Or God is more drawn to someone who can pray eloquently or speak powerfully. Or worse is that God desires certain people in positions to get saved. I had this really unusual obsession with Michael Jordan as a young child. Anybody there? I took it way too far. One of the things was that I... I won't tell you how I took it too far, just trust me, is I had this unhealthy obsession of Michael Jordan, and I was always like trying to convince myself that Michael Jordan was a Christian, but he wasn't. And I'd plead with God, like, God, just think of all the people that'll get saved if Michael Jordan gets saved. Like, I'd like plead with God, like, you know, someone write him a letter, tell him about Jesus. The kingdom depends on Michael Jordan loving Jesus. <laughs> totally convinced of it. I was totally convinced that the entire world would come to Jesus if it just Michael Jordan got saved. You know what that's called? Lust. God is not lusting after any particular person to be saved. He desires all people to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4, all people. God isn't like secretly desiring certain people to come to him and others to not. I remember being in church service, and this is nothing you know, to do with any particular denomination, but I was in a, a church that was very strong about denomination, and there was a golf player of the same denomination who was playing in, like, the PGA Pro Tour. And he had made the first cut, and we all stood because he was of this denomination, and we're going to pray for him because that ball needs to get to the pin for the glory of God. And I just remember, like, we're all standing for a professional athlete that he would, like, win so that he might mention Jesus on a microphone. I don't get this. 
This is weird, and, and like there's this rallying of, of celebrities and politicians and bands, and, and maybe if they get saved, and we, in our hearts, sometimes I think we think that God actually wants to be saved more than he wanted us to be saved. We easily believe that the kingdom will have a bigger impact on earth depending upon the person who comes to him. It implied that God wants some people to be saved more than others. But God is just as excited as the homeless man who received Jesus on his deathbed than a rock star who receives him on the stage. He celebrates them both equally. They're both equal in his sight. And God is just as passionate about his relationship with you as his relationship with Stephen Curry or Bono or the orphan in India. He loves you. He does not discriminate in his love and his pursuit of you. He treats it all with the same passion and zeal. And he's not jealous and therefore has no lust for relationship for anyone. What's the other component of carnal jealousy? It's insecurity. And in our hearts, I believe that most of us feel that God is actually really insecure. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone who's really insecure? Like the world revolves around them. Like, they don't want anything. They want you on an island with no electricity and nothing. Just you. No one can talk to you. Ever. What do they say? Do they say anything? Like, you know, like, it's psycho, isn't it? Some of you are like, this person right here. No. <laughs> the presence of anything else, the thought of anything else is just intolerable. Is that a new shirt? Do you like that shirt more than me? Huh? 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 Do you think about the shirt more than me? But yet that's really how sometimes we think God is with us. That God's in competition with your entire life. Any of your area of life. He's like, oh no, they got a good job. Then they're not going to go to church now because they don't need me. We think that we need God most when we have the most need. But when everything's good, we don't need God as much. And we've trained ourselves to believe that God is insecure in his jealousy. And it's astonishing how frequently we describe God in this jealous manner, that he's in competition with everything in you. And we say things like, God wants you to give him his whole life. Or, God wants you to give him your whole life. There it is. It doesn't even sound weird to us anymore. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about like after being, after having a new life, right? And this whole Christian discipline of like giving God all your life. Hello, McFly. Jesus came to give you life. <laughs> Did anybody figure that out? Like we're, we're talking about giving our life to God. He's like, I'm giving it to you. He's like, stop it. Stop trying to give back what I gave to you. Have you ever like given a good gift and someone wants to try and give it back? Jesus is probably like face palm in heaven. He's like, all these people are trying to give their life back to me. I gave it to them. He's like, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. To those who rejected Jesus, this is what he says in, in John 540. He says, for you are unwilling to come to me so that they may have life. The greatest receipt, or the greatest treasure we have in receiving salvation is that, yeah, our old self is gone, but we get a new life. We receive. He's a good, good father. 
He never asks you to give him the life he gave you. I don't pray for God to take away the life I have. Because he's actually given me a great life. It's far better than I could have done by myself. Only an insecure God would give you life and then require you to give it back to him. And remember, as we talked before, is that God's aiming for your heart, right? God wants your heart. He doesn't want your stuff. He doesn't want your car. He doesn't want your job. I always thought he, God only wanted my dating relationship. That's the only thing he wanted. He, did, he, he wants your heart. That's the single thing he's after. Why? It's because the heart, again, it's the forever part of you. Now, you can give God your car, your career, your relationship, money, but that doesn't mean that God has your heart. But you can give God your heart, and and maybe all those things follow. It doesn't matter. I'm just saying, giving God your car and your house and selling every penny you, or giving every penny you have to the homeless doesn't necessarily mean that you've given him your heart just means you're going to have a really tough six months of your life. And probably resent the trials and tribulation that have fallen you. But there's a mentality in Christian thinking that believes that God is so insecure that he wants all eyes on him and off of his children. We believe that, or at least I did believe, that any recognition that comes to me that didn't go to him is like bad, like Oh my gosh, someone paid me a compliment. I forgot to tell him it was like only Jesus. And oh my gosh, they think like I took the compliment myself. And I'm like, oh shoot, like what do I do? I had messed up thinking like that. Where that unless I acknowledge God in everything, that he would be very jealous and very angry. That's why when you watch a Hollywood award show, anybody gets up to like receive an award, you have all these unbelievers thanking God. (laughs) I first want to thank God, though I don't believe him at all. Why? It's because they think God's jealous. They think God is insecure. This week I watched Scarlett, who's four, jump off a diving board. And it's not like she got out and I'm like, now you tell everyone that I like taught you how to swim. I taught you how to like put on your clothes and I took you to the pool. Like I'm not, I'm like, I'm celebrating with her. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, okay, Scarlett, tell all your friends that like, it's only because of me that you're able to do that. Okay, now, perfect. It'd be messed up, wouldn't it? But that's some of the thing, and here's where it comes back to kindness. If someone pays you the radical compliment, right? And the, the, the Christian response is like to put up this like reflection feels like it's all God and you like want to get it off of you, right? Remember this habit of like, it's all him, it's all him. We just want to like, just to be out from under it. And that's not God's heart at all. When you really, so like, I've, I've lived that way my entire life. But here's the thing is like, everything is for him, through him, by him. There is never any debate. Deuteronomy 8.18, for he gives you the, the power to create wealth. He gives you the power to do everything. And of, of course it's him. I wasn't saying it was anybody else. But I also need to receive the impact in my heart of kindness. To reject the compliments to shield yourself from actually ever encountering kindness too. And God's not honored when you like all point it to him because he's like, well, duh. Like, come on. The secure people know that everything is from Christ. 
It's like I can say, you did an amazing job, Eden. It was singing. It was amazing. And you don't honestly need to tell me that it was only because of God because I already know. And when you're totally secure in that it all comes from Jesus, you won't be insecure about what didn't get attributed to him. There's an incredible amount of down-talking that goes on in the Christian church, too. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Sinners saved by grace. You guys have heard me rant on this before. In worship, we say, we're not worthy. You know, we say these things sometimes. We sarcastically downplay our victories. Good job. I was all right. You know? We suppress our freedom of enjoying anything. Because we believe if we enjoy it too much, God's going to take it away. I remember the very pronounced fear, I better not enjoy anything too much because then God's going to teach me a lesson to not enjoy things too much because I've fallen in love with the world or something. And so I trained myself never to enjoy, receive, and be thankful because I was worried as if I really loved it, if I really enjoyed it, God would get insecure and take it away. Because only true enjoyment happens at church. It's like, it's not true. Life is a gift. He's giving you life. Some of you are like super bitter and kind of downtrodden in life, and you think, like, I need to like find all my joy just in a Bible study, you know? And God's like, no, I've given you life. I've given you an amazing life. Receive it, celebrate it, enjoy it. Everything's from me, it's worship to me. Let me put it this way. I've never given my daughter a gift and thought, ooh, she's enjoying this too much. Let me take this away from her for my glory. (laughs) It's messed up, isn't it? In fact, I'm like, I give her a gift, and if she doesn't enjoy it, I'm kind of like, kind of bummed out. I'm like, oh, that was a really cool toy. It's Michael Jordan. You don't know who that is. Never in the Father's heart is he looking and he's like, they better not enjoy it too much, not too much. Let me close with this. None of that's God's heart. He's not insecure. He's not just being nice, but really being manipulative. He really does look at your heart. He's not looking at your sin and your flesh. He doesn't want you to feel guilty for the gifts that he's given you either. When I give a gift to my daughter, we gave her a pony at the age of two. My wife's a horse veterinarian. Her second birthday, which I know is like probably illegal in like parenthood to do that to a child at that age. We gave her a horse at two. Crazy, right? There's nothing in me that wants her to feel guilty to like pay it off and like really be appreciative of it. We have all these things in our psyche about the good things that come from God and the burden that comes with receiving it. And do we value it and do we appreciate it? And God, it's all you. That's completely apart from God's heart. Now, I would be sad if my children only wanted me to get ponies and never wanted my heart. I'd be really sad. I'd be super sad. But a lot of us, we kind of say, God, I want the job, I want the relationship, I want the kids, I want the house, I want the car, I want, but I don't want your heart. I want you to be nice instead of kind. I want you to service my head and my flesh. I don't want you to encounter my heart. Just give me this stuff, but leave the relationship part out of it. That grieves God's heart. 
Because again, it misses the eternal part of you. God's not looking for your car. He has no use for a car in heaven. Do you know that doesn't make any sense, right? He doesn't need your job. There's plenty of employment in heaven. He's okay there. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Some of us need a reboot in our thinking. Let me ask you these questions and I'm done because I could talk literally for hours, but I love you much more than that. (laughs) Do you believe that God is counting your sins and giving you certain things if you're good and certain things if you're bad? That's not a kind God. If you believe that your specific outcomes, failures, tragedies, blessings are based upon how much not sinning you're doing and how good your tendency is, then you have a manipulative God. And you're never going to give him your heart. You've actually never encountered the heart of God if that's what you believe. Because he's like, I'm not manipulating you. I refuse to manipulate you. You might be making a mess of yourself. Life is hard, like Leanne said. Like, life, there's going to be challenges in life. We live in a fallen world. We get that. But he's like, I'm not going to manipulate you because I'm after your heart. Are you totally stressed out about giving God everything? Are you wondering, like, is God really glorified enough? <laughs> like, are you, are you stressed out that is God revealed enough in me? Are you paranoid about stealing God's glory? Newsflash, you can't steal God's glory because it's infinite. There's a little math problem there for you. <laughs> if those minds come to you, because they come to me, or they used to, if you believe that God's in competition with you for glory, for attention, for stuff, if you believe that, then your God is actually really insecure. And he's no better than a high school girlfriend. And you will never give your heart to a jealous girlfriend either. Because God, or boyfriend, thank you. Because God is solely after your heart. He's like, I, I went to the cross so that you'd have a choice. So you would know without a doubt. Like, the cross, remember for me, it's like really was this guilt trip. He's like, I went to the cross not to make you feel obligated. I went to the cross so you'd have a choice. I went there not requiring you to be acknowledging of the cross and receiving me. I went there before you chose me to be kind and to show you that I'm eternally committed and secure in you. I'm going to end it there. I love you guys.